Oh, it brings me such joy to be able to be here this morning and to share this occasion with Carla and with her family and with all of you, um, members of, of really a distinguished church um, that has carried out for such a long time a distinguished ministry. Carla and I do go back a long time. She was bold enough to count up the years the other day, which um, I, I don't, but we have, uh, we've known each other for quite a while. I was uh, a youth minister called at University Christian Church in Carla, uh, was in the youth group. So I first got to know her at a time when um, she uh, giggled more than she does today, <laughs> though, though not a lot more, I guess. Um, and, and Linda and I uh, also had the privilege of having Carla uh, work at Bel Air Christian Church a couple of summers in the intern program as she was thinking through her vocation and and I heard she got the first word in about me which I guess leaves me to get the last word in but I, I will just share one story w with you about Carla and it really comes from that period of time and uh, Carla and I had been off to some youth uh, event and Linda was there at home and we were going to house for six weeks that summer a Japanese student and uh, the school was coming over and maybe there were 20 of them that were staying at various places in the Houston area and so he arrived in the time that I was away and I get back and Linda says he doesn't speak English he doesn't speak English not a word of it he was supposed to speak English he doesn't speak English and I said well I've got the headline Linda um, <laughs> let me check this out and so I went to Masoji and I said how are you doing and he said and I went back to Linda and I said, he does not speak English. No. <laughs> it's going to be a long six weeks. Well, I don't know, Carla was either had come back a little later or was somewhere um, doing some things. And she came over that evening to meet him and to share dinner with us. And Linda and I were kind of shaking around in the kitchen and setting the table. And I look in there and Carla's sitting on the floor with Mastoshi. And, and they've got a picture book open and she's saying, Apple. And he says, Apple. And different than plate, plate, and, and come back through, and she's just pointing things, and he's saying tree and things like that, which we discovered he spoke English. He just never heard English done like a Texan does it. <laughs> she, he knew he spoke English. He wasn't sure we did. <laughs> but <clears throat> it's all to say that there's, there's a real view of ministry there that Carla had maybe from the day she was born. That's what really ministry and friendship really is. You sit on the floor together and you point to things and you make connections. It's what, what friends uh, do. And so Carla uh, has had that her whole life and it has served her um, so well among you. And so it's a joy to be here with you and to have spent some time this weekend and see just the affection in which you hold her and uh, to see her face light up when she talks to you and speaks to you. Affection isn't really the right word. We might as well call it what it is, which is love, the love you have. And so Linda and I are really privileged to be here and be a part of this, and we thank you. Um, I started trolling around a little bit for a text on which we might uh, ruminate this morning. And I'm sure you probably would have turned uh, to the same story I did, this, this story in the first chapter of the Acts of the Apostles, which we have had read for us. Um, Jesus had been crucified and then raised, um, and then he had ascended, and the disciples found themselves in an interim period 
all by themselves, a time of waiting and preparation. They had been in an upper room. They had been immersed in prayer. The days passed. And at some point, I guess Peter said, you know, we have something that we, we must do here. We have an important task before us. We need to fill the vacancy among our apostleship. And so they decide to choose the next uh, disciple. There were about 120 people there. Um, coincidentally, I'm guessing, 120 is the number of males that you would have needed to form a synagogue in the council. It's not an accidental number. The criteria that they have is that they have to have somebody who has been with them for the entire ministry. Um, the fallen uh, disciple, uh, the, or the one the disciple to be chosen, had to have been present for Jesus' entire ministry from baptism to departure. And so two names are put forward. You heard the story, Joseph Versabis and uh, Justice, and uh, also called Justice and Matthias are the names that are put forward, and they cast lots. And Matthias um, wins this apostleship lottery. It is, I grant you, a curious story. It's not exactly clear why the story is told. Um, maybe to complete the story of Judas, although a couple of these gospel writers seem to con be content to let the story end in the Gospels with him holding money while Jesus is carried away. Um, maybe it's just to put on the church some lesson of humility. This will be the story in Acts of, a, of an evangelistic, growing church that will move out to the ends of the earth, and maybe they just need a, a reminder at the very beginning that there's nothing out there they will encounter that they haven't already encountered inside. A good lesson in humility that that somehow we're not better inside this place than the people that we would reach out there. Well, what else you notice in the story? And, and there's three things that I'll put out there very quickly. One is the story comes off, I think, as sort of pedestrian. Um, it's, uh, it's a volume, this Acts of the Apostles, that will record remarkable things. Um, uh, the birth and the blossoming of the church, it's, it's complete with rushing winds and, and mighty sermons, and there will be shipwrecks in this uh, book, and stonings, and there will be journeys to the end of the earth, and it begins with this uh, story, these verses that don't inspire all that much. The second thing um, <clears throat> is the way they choose casting stones. I mean, really? That's how it's done. Your discernment committee probably could have spared themselves a few meetings. But you didn't do it that way. You did it with a discernment committee instead of the biblical way, one of those newfangled ways of trying to call ministers. The third thing that you notice, maybe, is that the disciple replacement was accomplished before the onset of the Holy Spirit. And if you lose the first two observations, just try to hold that one for a few minutes through the end of the sermon. Uh, try to hang to that one. They pick a replacement before Pentecost and the emergence of the Holy Spirit on that community. And a side note, this is why some strands of tradition will, will really come to believe that Paul is the twelfth that will complete that circle of apostleship. But let's review the candidates for a moment. Um, look at, at quickly at their resumes. We'll start with Joseph Persavis. He was the guy who was not chosen. And whatever resume he handed in, apparently it wasn't enough. Uh, Joseph, or Sabas, Justice, we're not even completely clear about the name um, he goes by. According to Eusebius, Joseph was one of the 70. 
And another records in the oral tradition that he drank a cup of poison without harm. The Acts of Paul, a work belonging to the second century that's first mentioned by Origen, um, relates that Rosabas, Justice, the Flatfoot, and others were imprisoned in Rome by Nero uh, for professing their faith. But when there's a vision of uh, the newly martyred Paul that appears to the emperor, they are released, and he goes on to become bishop elsewhere, and he dies a martyr. But all of that is really just guesswork, speculation. Um, I'll just tell you this much more. In the Roman Catholic Church, um, Joseph uh, has a feast day, July the 20th. Mark it on your calendars for next year. Turn your thoughts for a moment to uh, Matthias, um, the fellow who does land the gig. Um, what is startling is we don't really know much more about him than we know about the guy that landed in second place. Um, shockingly, this is the first and it is the only scriptural reference to him. Who was Matthias? Clement of Alexandria thought he was Zacchaeus. Beyond this speculation, we're just left, as before, chasing legend. Some say his remains were sent to Europe by Constantine, lost during the Norman conquest, only to be miraculously discovered later. And uh, supposedly his skull is now in Italy and his body is in Germany. Um, where he went, how he served, what he preached, it is preserved now only in the mind of God. And so, with hardly 15 minutes of fame uh, in which to bask, he exits the stage and he's never heard from again. It's enough to make you pause and consider what it means to be called. Which is something I think most of the ministers, the clergy in the, the company, probably have spent a fair amount of time over their lives and ministries doing. Um, I, I know I have. I, I first tried to express my sense of call in a paper that I wrote, submitted to the members of the Commission on Ministry in the Christian Church of the Southwest, who were charged to judge my fitness for uh, ordination. It's a treatise which mercifully has been lost to history. <laughs> I don't recall any of the words that I wrote, but I do know that at that stage of my life, I had a difficult time trying to give some sort of voice to my sense of call, what it meant to me. I, I, I cared about people. Um, I found the, the study of scripture intellectually rewarding. Um, I had come across some ministerial mentors who meant a great deal to me. Um, I was discovering in myself some skills and, and uh, potential to, that might work well in ministry, and I like to talk. And, and in ministry, you get to talk on a Sunday morning and people listen, kind of. <laughs> but I couldn't point to a moment, an event, a, 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 an experience that I knew that God was speaking to me, telling me that God wanted me to go down this path. I had no... Damascus Road experience, it would have been helpful. I could have shared that in the paper, God coming to me, drafting me, um, a biblical story like the calling of, of Moses or Hannah or Mary or those disciples, uh, but I had nothing. Those kind men and women um, chose to ordain me anyway. Years passed, and I went to other positions on ministry, and I continued to reflect on what call meant in Fort Worth and, and uh, Houston and Macon, and as I worked with lay people, 
my thinking began to expand a little bit because I began to realize a lot of times the call comes uh, not just directly to me but to other people. The, the discernment committee that, 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 that works that call um, on behalf of, of Carla. I had been called to be a minister in the very first place in large measure because the community of faith issued that call. They, they heard something. There were influential people. Um, uh, Dr. Edwin Kirtley of Blessed Memory, a uh, pastor during my junior high and high school years who asked me a couple of times, Gary, have you ever thought about ministry? And so for some years it was on my mind that one of the ways that, that God speaks to us is through other people. Call doesn't have to be what God is whispering in my ear, but it may be what other people of faith are, are seeing and saying. So you had a committee of people trying to discern the direction that God was moving and pointing. The problem is that even when we are certain that God's voice is coming through the community, um, ambiguity can still reign. Um, now that I've found myself moving from a congregation in the Midwest to one in the Bible Belt area, kind of back where I started, I find myself constantly confronted with a, a phrase every week. I hear it at least once or twice um, when somebody will say something like, God has a purpose in this. We may not understand it, but God has some reason that this is happening. We're certain God is speaking, even if we're not sure what God is, is saying. Something good happens. Something bad happens. Whatever, God has a purpose. Don't obsess on why. Just be confident that, that God is managing everything. Everything. And I'm guessing that none of you know, really, any of the folks in my congregation, so I can say this and confess, I don't believe that. I don't believe that God is just handling everything. It's been a long time since I've been able to believe that. Every death, every setback, every advancement, every heartbreak, every new and wonderful experience, it's all because God is behind it. I'm sorry, but I've, I've just seen too much that I cannot reconcile with that declaration. And so you have called Carla to be senior minister of this congregation, and you've done this because God was pulling the strings. You cast lots. <laughs> Carla's name came up. And we're sure this is what God wanted. Maybe it's a good place to tell you a story that I came across some years ago. It's a story I really love, told by Michael Linval, Presbyterian minister um, who's written a couple of books of stories about an imaginary town and church in Minnesota. It's very Garrison Keeler-ish. And this is a story about something that happened to the minister of the Presbyterian Church there, um, Presbyterian Church in this little town where ministers would go right out of seminary just long enough to have a cup of coffee and get a little experience so they could go someplace good. And they had this churning of ministers in that time. But the story begins with the minister and his wife driving back uh, in a time right after Easter um, to the, the town after having gotten away for a few days in Minneapolis. And they're just talking and saying, it feels like we're going home. You know, I think maybe we could stay in North Haven for a, a few years. And I'll let Linval tell the story from this point forward. He says, we stopped and we picked up the kids at the sitters and went home and found a note tucked in the screen door. It said, Minnie McDowell is pretty sick. 
I think she's dying again. Um, better get over there when you get back. Minnie is 86. She is married to Angus, and for the last 10 years, she's been very organized about dying. She plans to do it just so, because she's always done everything just so. And that means she will die at home, in bed, with a freshly pressed nightgown on and the pastor present. And there have been two false alarms in the last three years. The doctor explained to me um, the only problem with Minnie's plan is she's not sick. So I climbed back in the car, I headed over to the McDowell's, and uh, Angus greeted me at the door with a grave look, a look he's had on his face since he was 22, or so they tell me. He says, thanks for coming, David. And he put his hand on my back, and he guided me up the staircase of their old Victorian home. Uh, Minnie was upstairs in bed in a lacy nightgown. Her hair was newly done. The bed covers were neatly um, folded up just above her waist, and she languidly kind of reached her, her arm out for me to take it and she smiled theatrically and said, I'm glad you made it back in time, Pastor. Angus pushed a chair for me up to the, the bed and I sat down and I let a moment pass and then I asked Minnie if she was comfortable and she nodded slowly and she said the doctor had been there but he had been no help at all. I was just getting up the nerve to ask her um, what the doctor had said when maybe sensing my question, she um, said to me, ask me the question, Pastor. The question I've come to know on those previous occasions um, is an essential part of her plans for dying. The pastor was to ask, are you prepared to die? And, and she would say, the die would answer, um, yes, Pastor, I am. And then the pastor would read, the 23rd Psalm, and would pray and conclude with the Lord's Prayer, and then the die would die. And, and we have done that twice, all except for the last part. So I smiled pastorally at Minnie, and I said, are you prepared to die? And I almost fell out of the chair when she said no. And her lips started quivering, and she looked away from me at the wall. And Angus patted me on the back and said, Minnie's got something she needs to get off her chest. At which Minnie said the words, No, Angus, you tell him. Well, David Angus said, You'll remember that I was chairman of the pulpit nominating committee that called you to be our pastor four years ago. And I remembered, of course, it was a small committee. Three people, they were used to doing this, and they had kind of streamlined the search process. Angus uh, began the tale. He was grave, even for, for Angus. He said, we received 28 dossiers from ministers, and we read them all, and we narrowed the choice down to two. You and the Reverend uh, Mr. Hardwick Benson of Indianapolis, and we invited both of you to come over, and uh, we listened to both of you preach up at Wilmar. It came back to me just like it was yesterday. It was a hot day in June. I had a brand new pulpit robe on. Uh, my champion fit all sermon had been fine-tuned. And it was all great except my voice cracking there at the very end in what was supposed to be the thunderous uh, conclusion, uh, a little bit weak. And so I decided I'd have to settle for something even less desirable than North Haven, Minnesota. But um, with elation, with affirmation, a simple note came four days later, and it was postmarked, 
North Haven, Minnesota. There was no heading. There was only a date. And then, dear sir, we are most pleased to inform you. David Angus said, Minnie was secretary of our committee. And she typed up all the letters. And she typed the one up to Reverend Benson and the one up to you. And somehow... Mr. Benson got your letter, and you got his. <laughs> Minnie started dabbing her eyes with her hanky. said, we never realized the mistake until you called on the phone to say, yes, you would come, and you were so eager. We just decided, well, you know, what the heck. <laughs> Minnie was shaking her head and said, I just couldn't die without getting that off my chest. But suddenly, it didn't seem like it was Minnie who was dying, it was me. <laughs> so I nosed around for you, Carla, you know, here in the last couple of days, and I've been checking with folks that, you know, that kind of were part of that process, see if there was any chance that there were multiple envelopes around. <laughs> and I'm happy to report, apparently not. So I think we're good, okay? Don't thank me. I'm just glad to do that for you. We dodged a bullet. But truthfully, um, this is what I, I guess I'm really thinking. Um, maybe God does not orchestrate life as much as we sometimes might like to think. In the first chapter of Acts, we read that the disciples decide they need to replace Judas. How do they choose the successor? They play a game of chance, and maybe that is a, a wonderful opportunity for God to determine the outcome, but I, I wonder if it didn't really just end up to be some sort of blind chance. It, it was a roll of the dice, a, a spin of the roulette wheel, a cut of the cards, two letters and two envelopes. In the opening pages of Scripture that we read, kind of coincidentally, we're told that on the seventh day God rested. And maybe we ought to ask ourselves whether or not that's some clue that God is not micromanaging everything. Here's the rub. In that same book of Genesis, God hands responsibility to Adam and Eve. You name all the animals that I have created. It's nothing less than a sharing of the work of creation. I won't do it all for you, God said. Get in the game. Take your best shot. See where it goes from there. In the case of the call that we celebrate this morning, don't be afraid to own it. Don't feel like you need to be able to blame it on God somehow. Because we remember in these opening chapters of Acts, the Spirit comes in force and power after Matthias is called. Pentecost came later. Well, I've told you a fair amount about what I don't believe. Let me just close real quickly by telling you something that I do believe. Because I don't want you to get me wrong. I, I don't think that there is no call to ministry. I think God does call people into ministry. I just think it might not have happened some months ago in a boardroom somewhere around a conference table. I think God's call has come to Carla and to this congregation, and it's probably happening right now. I think God's call is never so much something that occurs in the past as in that present moment, the present, I don't know, English teacher, perfect progressive tense. Do you hear? 
God calling? Because I do. I think now that the careful process and thinking and voting is behind you, you can hear a call with a remarkable clarity, as though God is saying, now that the decision's been made, I want you to listen to me. Carla, there are souls that need comforted. There are children that need to be given the gift of faith. There are hurting people in the streets and in the pews. There are joyous people who need to be able to give voice to to the happiness that is inside them. There are people that need to be speaking the truth to power. And Joe and Dina and Alex, the world is filled with wars and rumors of wars and refugees and starving children. The streets are filled with broken sons and, and daughters of God. There are people who are hungry to serve. There are people who are so lost they can't find their way home. So can you hear God calling you? Mike and Sarah and Paul and Monica, if you do believe that God is calling, then find that common voice so you can bring good news to the poor, so you can proclaim release to the captives, you can offer the recovery of sight to the blind and let the oppressed go free and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And I don't know, Melissa and Robert and David and Lydia and Taylor and Rose and Jacob, every single one of you, rise up. Bind your hearts together if you hear that call. Answer that call. And know that even now the Holy Spirit is moving among you. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't look back. Follow him. Do you hear God calling? Because I do. I really do. God bless you.